Our text this morning is Luke chapter 25, or excuse me, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. It is a very familiar passage, and as I have uh, said in the past, when we come across a passage that we are very familiar with the story of, that means we must especially be on our guard to pay attention to the word so that we do not supply meaning, but rather we hear the Holy Spirit's voice in the Word of God. This is the Word of the Lord. It is completely without error. It is completely sufficient. And it is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Well, this is a familiar passage, isn't it? It's well known to so many of us. Perhaps there's not anyone here who doesn't believe he knows the story, at least in some part, of the Good Samaritan. It's, it's actually one of the best known passages in all of the Bible. If we were to go out into the streets today, we could 
ask people at random, and they would have at least heard of the story of the Good Samaritan. If we were to go into state buildings in capitals across the country and pour through their laws, we would find Good Samaritan laws in nearly every state. It's something that we think we know very well. But this morning we have to understand that this parable, this story, has been put here by Luke for a purpose. It comes in a context. It might surprise you to realize that this parable, this story, is only found in Luke. Not in any of the other Gospel writers. And to remind you once again of Luke chapter 1, Luke has written this Gospel that we might know. He's written this orderly account that we might be more certain about what we believe. And so, let's listen this morning to the voice of the Spirit in this text and learn what the parable of the Good Samaritan really was told for. The first thing we will see is the question that is asked of Jesus. And then the second thing we will see is the response that Jesus gives. And then third and finally, we will see the parable itself as the sum of what we learn today. Well, let's begin then by looking at the question that's asked. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, you're looking at verse 25, which is the beginning of our passage. And I think what you need to do is to let your eyes just move up just a little bit to verses 20, 21, and 22. Because you see, the Good Samaritan story does not drop out of heaven with no beginning and no end. There's a context to it. And we have to remember that the question that is asked is asked in a context. The lawyer asks this question because of two things that have happened just recently. The first is Jesus has said in verse 20, in the hearing of all, rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. And then he says, Father, I thank you that you have hidden this from the wise and powerful and that you have revealed it to children. And so, when the lawyer asks this question, that is, what is there? Now, who is this lawyer? Well, when we hear the word lawyer, we think of men in slick suits, perhaps telling us that we can get a claim. Or perhaps we think of someone who charged us more than we wanted to be charged to close on our house. We think of someone who's involved with the law or a courtroom and a judge. But that's not really what's meant here. This type of lawyer is not what we think of when we think of a lawyer. This is someone who is well-versed in the law. That is, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It is someone who in other places in the Scripture, especially the other Gospel writers, tend to call these types of men scribes. That doesn't do them justice either, because then we think of glorified secretaries. But you see, in some, they're people who spent all of their time trying to go through the law of God and to figure out what you were supposed to do and what you were supposed to not do and how you could tell others what to do and not to do. 
in essence, this man is the walking definition of those who think they are wise and have understanding. That is, those whom Jesus has just said, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden this from people like this lawyer over here. And you see, he begins then to engage Jesus. He asks this question, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And you see, he's beginning here a bit of a to-do list. He already assumes that he knows the answer. He's coming to Jesus as one who has authority. That is, the lawyer thinks he has authority. He knows the law. He wants to hear what Jesus has to say. He is, the Bible tells us, testing Jesus. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because most of the world believes it knows what it takes to inherit eternal life. If you walk up to someone, they will tell you. They'll be glad to give you their authoritative definition of what is needed to inherit eternal life. If we're honest, though, we think we know as well, sitting in church, don't we? And when Jesus begins to work in our lives in a way that is surprising or unusual, we question Him. Doesn't He know how things are supposed to go? The question comes to Jesus. It is a test, a deliberate test. The lawyer stands up as if to begin his inquiry. Now, you have to understand the the context here. Jesus is teaching and everyone is sitting around. And the lawyer then says, well, let me now ask you a few questions, Jesus. You've been asking us about things. Let me stand up here and ask you this. Is it really as easy as you think it is to inherit eternal life? After all, you're thankful that children can understand. So let me ask you, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is all about a test of authority. For you see, in just a few minutes we will see that the answer to this question that the lawyer knows comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the first five verses. The irony is is that just a little bit further down that chapter in Deuteronomy, verse 16 to be specific, we read, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And here he is, putting God to the test. As a matter of fact, Jesus understands this full well. That was the verse that Jesus used to refute the devil in Luke chapter 4. So this lawyer wants to show he's more authoritative. He understands things better than Jesus. And he begins with this question, what do I do? Jesus, give me the checklist. What's your version look like? What management system do you use, Jesus, to keep you on the path toward glory? And that's an easy way to begin, isn't it? It's where all of us often begin Now, this lawyer understands the basic principles of how the world works. He's asking Jesus, what do I need to do to be found in the final resurrection when only the righteous will rise to glory? He says, I need to know what you think the list is. And this is the way of, quite frankly, all of us outside of Jesus. 
For some, what I need to do is I need to be good. And then when I die, I'll get reincarnated up one rung up on the ladder. And then I have to be better again so that I can go up another rung. And if I'm not good, I might slide down a rung or two. That's what the Hindus believe. For others, they believe what I need to do is I need to seek enlightenment. I need to think about creation. And I need to gain more wisdom and knowledge. That's what the Buddhists do. For others, it calls for bone-crunching work. You know, I have to pray a certain way. I have to travel certain places. I have to do certain things, wear certain clothes. This is the way of Islam. And if you don't do all of those works in all of the right ways, all of the time, an angry, vengeful God will strike you down. For others, work is a bit more of a a tipping point. God does most of the work, but I need to push it over the edge. That's my job. That's the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. But you see, what all of this has in common is what is in common too to the great masses of society, that that is, it's what I do that matters. For you see, even someone that does not espouse an organized religion who doesn't say they have faith, they think that their standard is the standard. And it's amazing how the standard to get into heaven is always something that they can meet. It's just right there. And so that gets us to the heart of this question. It's a little bit deceiving here because as we read the question, we might think the doing is the main verb. And it's not. It's the inheriting. See, It's not what shall I do in the future to inherit eternal life. It's having done what shall I inherit eternal life. You see, what the lawyer is saying is, Jesus, after all that I've done, tell me how I will inherit eternal life. He's he's seeking affirmation from Jesus. He is standing in front of God and saying, God, look what I've done. You are so lucky to have someone like me. Look at my resume. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, isn't that how we live most of our lives? You should respect me. Why? Because of all the things I've done. You should help me. Why? Well, look at all the things I've done. You should love me. Why? Well, look at all that I've done for you. But you see, this is a misguided view. This is about ourselves. You see, what the lawyer is saying is, I deserve heaven. Jesus, affirm me. Give me encouragement that I've done everything I need to do. I've checked all my boxes, crossed everything off my list so that I might be in heaven. But you see, there are unwarranted assumptions in that kind of thinking. The first unwarranted assumption is that it is assuming that this discussion is about the other guy. Well, you know, Jesus, I've done everything I need to. But what do these people need to do? Tell us. Give us the list so that they'll know how to follow it. Help us out, Jesus. There is an assumption that the lawyer has already qualified for heaven, that it is already a done deal. 
But it's almost humorous, were it not so eternally sad, that even in his statement there is an internal contradiction. Listen to what he says. What shall I do? That is, what can I earn? What are my wages to inherit, to receive as a gift eternal life? How can I earn the gift? Tell me, Jesus. You see, this kind of thinking is so common, but it stunts our belief. It retards our growth. It stops us from listening to the answer. And Jesus is going to get our attention. He looks at the lawyer and he says, listen up. He doesn't do it by shouting. He does it by telling a very appropriate story that cuts to the quick. Because you see, these kinds of thoughts stop us from believing. They point back to ourselves. It becomes all about us. What is the response then that Jesus gives? Well, the first part of Jesus' response is, you need to look to the real source of the standard. You see, Jesus knows that the lawyer believes he already has the answer. Jesus knows that the lawyer thinks he is the standard, that his list is the golden list. And Jesus says, that's not where you look. He says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And Jesus asks him to go right to the Bible. What do you believe needs to be done? Now, Jesus would know that the lawyer would know the answer to this question theologically. It would be something that he would have prayed that morning. It was the daily prayer of the observant Jew called the Shema. Shema is just simply the first word in Hebrew of that passage in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And so this is a softball. The lawyer can't believe himself. Well, of course he thinks kids can get this. We catechize our four and five-year-olds on this question. But there's a point that Jesus makes further. He says not only what is written in the law, he says, how do you read it? You see, what he's saying is, I don't want your thoughts. I don't care what you think. I don't care what they think. I care what God thinks. What's in God's Word? You see, Jesus points Him and us to the real authority. The answer is found in the Bible. Do you know what the Bible says? Jesus asks Him. And give me support for it. How do you read it? Don't give me vague Bible ideas. Because you see, we've all experienced, I think, that from others at large, or maybe even in our own lives, where someone will say, Well, you know, it's like the Bible says. God helps those who help themselves. And you say to yourself, where? Not in my Bible, it doesn't. Or it's like the video that I saw last week in which someone said that God is most glorified when I'm happy. And so my happiness is the most important thing. And I ask myself the age-old question, what Bible are you reading? You see, Jesus says, don't just give me vague thoughts. Go take me to the Scriptures. Give me the authority. 
And they go to that standard, and it is a real standard. The lawyer answers the question, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. It is the next phrasing after the famous opening of the Shema. And then he couples with it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. So it is a twofold truth from Scripture. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, first and foremost, you must love God. That sounds easy, doesn't it? I like God. God's good. God makes me happy. It's warm and fuzzy. But that's not what the Bible says, does it? You must love the Lord your God fervently with all your heart. With all your mind, knowingly. With all your strength, actively. With all your life, your soul. All of the time, without exception. In thought, in word, in deed, in intentions. Now that starts to get a bit beyond us, doesn't it? And then the second commandment, which is linked to the first, comes rushing at us and love your neighbor as yourself. The highest possible standard of humanity. Just as you would wish to be loved, you must love your neighbor. And then Jesus answers by saying, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now think about that for a moment. That's all you have to do. Love the Lord your God completely with everything you have, with all your strength, all your mind, and all your soul, all the time. And love everyone like yourself all of the time. How can I do that? I can't do the second commandment without the first, and I can't do the first. I can't do it in my own strength. I can't love the Lord my God all the time with all my strength. How is this possible? And you see, this is where the heart is revealed because the lawyer understands this. He understands this is not a halfway measure. He understands this is not a curve. This is not a 65 passing. Because he looks at Jesus and he says, well, first we get a bit of a, of a pointer. Luke tells us that he is desiring to justify himself. So you see, he wants to be right and he wants to justify that he has done enough. And so the only possible way to have done enough is to take the universe of what I am supposed to do and to put it on a post-it note. That I can do. But you see, there's a problem with that. For you see, the Lord God says, you shall not murder. And we think, no problem. It has been, I don't think I've ever hit anybody in the head with an axe. Never shot anybody yet either. Haven't stabbed anyone. Got that one. And then Jesus says, 
if you nourish anger in your heart toward another, you've murdered. And then he says, you shall not lie. And we think, well, we can, we can make sure we tell the truth. And he says, no. If you gossip about others. And we think, well, we could hold back from gossiping. I could hold back from gossiping. At least, except for people who deserve it. You see, that's what we do. We take the law of God, which is holy and just and broad, and the commandment that comes down on us, and we want to limit it, because when we do, then we can fool ourselves into thinking that we have done it. And having done it, we can live. But that's not what the law says. And you see, that's what this lawyer tries. He looks at Jesus and he says, Okay, Jesus, so really... Who's my neighbor? You've given me such a basic answer. I mean, everybody knows this answer. It's from the Shema. All of the kids in Sunday school know this answer. Now really, let's let's do some hard theological work. Let's sit down and think about this. Let's debate. Let's sharpen iron. What does it really mean to be a neighbor? Surely you don't mean everyone. Can't mean that, right? We're all good Jews and we know that Jews only have themselves as neighbors. The Egyptians aren't our neighbor. The Syrians aren't our neighbor. So really, what do you mean exactly? You see, the problem there is is that once again, he's proving the focus is on self and not on God and his demands. He wants to limit who this is applied to. It's easy to love your neighbor as yourself if you limit the neighborhood. You make the neighborhood so small and you don't let anyone else come in. Then you might be able to do it. This is true for us too, isn't it? Because you see, this command comes to you. We like to limit who our neighbors are. Those whom we are put out for. Those whom we are required to love Everyone else could be passers in the night, but neighbors we need to keep smaller. Sometimes we limit this ethnically, right? That happens in the church. It's often said that Sunday morning is the most segregated time in America. But for others, we limit it socially. Those who are in our social peer group or our our class or people we like to be around, well, they could be our neighbors, but not those other people who are tiresome and bothersome. Perhaps we might even think it was holy to look out and say, well, our neighbors are those who share the same faith that we do. You don't mean that we need to love Muslims like this, do you? Buddhists? Secular humanists? Evolutionist, seriously. Jesus, can't we put a limit on this? You know how hard it is to love a Muslim? You see, the lawyer has the question framed from all of the wrong perspective. And then Jesus answers the question with a story. Do you notice that? He doesn't give him a direct answer. He says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, well, there was a man. And he was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now everyone would know that that's about a 15 to 17 mile journey. It's very dangerous. 
It's going through the worst part of town. Because along that road, there would be deserts and caves where robbers would hide. It's completely unsurprising that this man is set upon by robbers and nearly killed. This would have been an ordinary occurrence in the life of an ancient Israelite. And so he is set upon by thieves. He's stripped, beaten, and left for dead. Now imagine him, bones perhaps broken, blood matting down his hair. He can't even speak to ask for help. He probably can moan so that you know he's alive and he needs help. And then look at what Jesus says. By chance, a priest comes by. Can you imagine that? It makes us optimistic. What are the odds of a holy man being on the road right at this time when the man's half dead? Surely he will help. But the priest comes, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, Jesus is clear. It's not that he was too busy or was looking around and didn't see him. He saw the man. And because he saw him, he went away from him to go to the other side and cross. Why? Well, this priest is probably returning from worshiping in the temple. It's as if this is happening 20 minutes from now as you're leaving church. And he deliberately avoids this man because he does not want to be unclean. You see, Leviticus 21 would have made him unclean. Do you see, the priest is saying, I can't help this man because I've got to obey God. He's violating the principle that the lawyer is just enunciated, that we are to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbors ourselves and This priest has taken these two principles and made them conflicting. Well, next comes a Levite. Not as high-ranking as a priest, but still one that would work in the temple. A member of the clergy, we might say. And what happens here? The Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And it's interesting because the verb here for saw him actually implies that the Levite went up close to look at the man to sort of see if he was really dead. And then after he'd had a good look, he left him there and walked on the other side. It's horrible. Now, you can imagine the crowd is waiting with bated breath for what will come next. And you have to understand that the lawyer is loving this story. Why? Because you see, the mood here in Israel at this time would have been anti-clergy, anti-priest, anti-Levite because of all of the political shenanigans going on. And the way a parable like this is supposed to go is look at the rotten priest, Look at the rotten Levite. And the third man comes by. And you know who the third man is supposed to be? The pious Israelite layman. The lawyer. That's who it's supposed to be. He's waiting. Okay, Jesus, come on. Tell me how the lawyer comes by. And makes everything good. 
And instead, Jesus looks at him and he says, Now, a Samaritan went by. Now, you have to understand here. What Jesus says is, A pastor went by, and a deacon went by, and then a member of ISIS came and saw the man, and he helped him. You see, no one was more hated in these times than Samaritans. They were more hated than the pagans because they were half-breeds, they were heretics, they were enemies. Jesus has turned this story completely on its head. He's taken it from something where the man expects to be told, what are the things that make me good? How do I know I am good? And he says, I'm going to take the worst example of the most rotten person you have ever thought about. The lawyer hates Samaritans. Look at the end of this passage. When Jesus says, who showed more mercy? He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He says, well, I guess the one who showed him mercy. He won't even use his designation. You see, the focus now is being put in the right place by Jesus. What he's saying to the lawyer and he's saying to you and to me is, don't think about the limits that you can place on God. Don't think about who they are, whether they are worthy of being your neighbor whether they are worthy of your help. Think about who you are and what kind of neighbor you are. You see, the lawyer is all worried about, is this person worthy of my help? Do I have to check the box on him? And Jesus says, are you the kind of neighbor that God calls you to be? You see, this is a radical view of the demands of the law. We have to be perfect. We have to go beyond our own expectations. We have to love God radically. We have to love our neighbors radically. We have to go beyond anything that we think is possible. So you say, Pastor, how do I do that then? And the answer is you can't. You can't have that kind of love. You can't work up in you that kind of love for God or love for neighbor. You can't go home and repeat it to yourself often enough and in your own strength say, I will love the people at ISIS. I will love the people at ISIS. It will not work. There must be a work of grace in your life. Your heart must be changed. You must be made radically different than you are to even approach obeying the law of God. You see, if we look at this question as one to be answered by our works, we're lost. I mean, it's hard enough to love our neighbor when our neighbor is our family. Right, siblings? It's even harder when we branch out to friends. How are we supposed to love everyone, especially the people we can't stand? Jesus is undoing our self-pride. He's saying to you and to me, don't think it's what you have done that will earn you inheriting eternal life. You can't do it. Your only hope 
is to be changed. Your only hope is to receive mercy because when one has received mercy, they can show mercy. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You see, it is an evidence that comes out of our lives that we have been changed. Jesus looks at him and he says, You, go and do. You see, when we have been changed by an encounter with Jesus, when we know that we inherit eternal life, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done, then we can go and show the fruit and evidence of that in our lives. You see, it is about more than talk. It is about more than ideas. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you will be changed. And then you will know that you have eternal life. And then the evidence of that will be found in your life. The fruit will spring up and out. And the irony is that then you will know you have eternal life because of the fruit that God brings into your life. If this morning you've had everything backwards, you've been worrying about what you need to do, how you think you can set things up, how everything can be lined up so that you can inherit eternal life, there is good news for you. For you see, this is not the end. It only takes but a moment to turn. You can look at this and say, I never saw the Good Samaritan this way. I thought the Good Samaritan was all about I'm supposed to help people. It's not. It's an answer to the question, remember, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now is the day of salvation. And if you have been struggling, wondering how you can love others, wondering how you can love God, you know the Lord Jesus Christ, but you are at your wit's end, then this passage gives you hope. For you see, Jesus is the one who empowers us. Jesus is the one who does. He changes us. And the evidence is evidence of Jesus' handiwork, not our doing. How do I inherit eternal life? I inherit eternal life by following the Son, by obeying His commands, to repent of my sins and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the calling that comes to you today. It comes to you from God's Word. Believe upon Jesus and you will be saved. Let's pray.